not only was I the first one to ever go to university, but now I was the first one to immigrate, not by escaping communism. <laughs> so I was the first one not to seek asylum. Welcome to Friends of Build Magazine. I'm your host, Ted Bainbridge. I've been traveling the world and working in publications for 30 years. In 2016, we launched our first issue of Build Magazine, a publication dedicated to high-end home construction, renovation, and the innovative experts that make this possible. This podcast was created to have some fun and explore those who have taken on the challenge of building luxury homes in demanding locations. From navigating logistics and construction to excavating the earth, we want to learn more about these people and how their projects became cover-worthy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So I'm excited to finally have Nita Risto from Nita Risto Interior Designs in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, be our guest today. Nita originally came from Albania, which I can't wait to talk to you about because we're geography nerds. Um, Anyway, she came to the States in 2005 to study interior design. Directly out of school, she received a job in Jackson and never looked back. In 2020, at six months pregnant, I can't believe you started your own firm when you're about to have a baby. So welcome to the show and thanks for making this happen. Yes, thank you, Ted. I appreciate you inviting me to the show. I'm excited to chat for a bit. (laughs) So as I'm doing a little research, and we'll get into your interior design in a second, but I'm all about, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, I'm all about the American dream because we immigrated from Canada. Mm. And so we came in uh, 2001, so just before you did, and I I was reading a story or listening to somebody, and this, this British woman had married this American in Ohio, and she came over to the States. They now have a couple of kids. She's been here, I want to say, three years. She thought she had never been to the States before, and she thought everybody, all they did was shoot people and kill people because that's all the media in Britain talks about. And she comes over here, and she goes, I can't believe how safe it is, how we just travel all over the place, how we have freedoms here. We can just get in our car and go wherever we want. Whereas in Britain, it's not that way. And one of my questions to you is about interior design, the freedom of being in America compared to other parts of the world. I started to think about that. My son was in Saudi Arabia. My wife and my daughter won't go to Saudi Arabia. You know, we see all the chaos going on in Israel right now. And the freedoms we have here, I think most people take for granted. That is true to an extent, for sure. Um, Obviously, There is a reason why I decided to move to the States. And as I like to, when I have conversations with people about my journey and how I got here and how things have happened, the American dream is live and well. Yeah. It might not be as easy or as achievable as it used to be, let's say back in the 80s, because things have changed, but it is still there for sure. And there are things that, happen here that I know for sure that if I would have moved somewhere else in Europe, probably things wouldn't have been the same for me. Most of it has to do with the fact that here, if you work and if you put in the effort and if you like talent alone is not going to get you where you want to be exactly, but you have to put in a lot of work to get where you want to be. But if you do all of that, some doors will open up and you will be able to get somewhere close to where you want to be, right? Because, you know, we're, we're always striving for that big dream, but at least you have, there are opportunities. When I think of my life here and then what it would have been like in Europe, I have great examples because I have friends who did that from back home. They studied in Europe, they continued their career in Europe, and I've had a lot more opportunities. First, because as I said, you know, if I've been a hard worker, I was a good student and nobody ever, ever, questioned where I was from or where I came from. What you mean here? Yes, in the United States, meaning that it didn't matter that I came from a third world country. It didn't matter that I came from what here would be considered extreme poverty. As long as I did the work and as long as I put in the effort, nobody cared. In Europe, it's a different story. In Europe, it's all about who you know and 
what status you are. And if you are from a certain country, you've, they've already discriminated you. And that didn't happen here. At least I didn't feel like that at all. I've never felt like that in the, how many years has it been now? 19 years that I've been here. Yeah, the, the, the class system uh, doesn't exist in, in America. Yes, I agree. Okay, so how did you how did you make the decision? I mean, you're already or, or you, you're a, a young woman. So when you came here 20 years ago, you were literally a student. I'm assuming. I was 19 when I first moved here. The decision was I was studying back home, and my family did not really was not a family that had a lot of connections. So when you decide to go to college or university back home. There are different criteria that you have to meet. And I was planning on studying architecture. And to go into architecture school, you have to pass this test, which is a, a, a four-day-long test. This is and, in Albania? Yes. Okay. And they test you in different, in various areas. And I was a really good student, like very nerdy, all throughout high school and middle school and, you know, m- my entire schooling. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was able, like most of the people that got into architecture school, got into architecture school because of their connections, because they knew the teachers, because their parents had some sort of status, because architecture school was like one of the top most seeked schools. I got in because I just was a good student. I was a nerd that didn't have connections, but I was able to get in. So that was a huge achievement for my family. I was the first one to actually be accepted to go to university for my entire family. Wow. Because my parents grew up during communism and because they weren't communists, they couldn't go to university. So when communism fell, I was literally the first one for my entire family to be accepted into university. So that was a huge deal. Obviously, that was a school that I wanted to attend. I was very excited. I was very happy. And then after about a year and a half, I realized that things would be pretty hard for me over there because... Again, I did. My family did not did not have connections, and I could see, you know, the disadvantages that I had with other students whose fathers were architects or who knew important people. So my dream started getting crushed a little bit. I started being like super excited, and then it was like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> maybe I'm just going to be able to work in an office and do CAD twenty four seven, and that's going to be my life. Yeah. Or I have to figure out some other ways. Back in that time, I was a newly, well, not so newly, but I was a converted LDS. Yeah. And one of the the missionary couples, after they heard me kind of like I was in a, not in a very good state of mind. And I was just talking to them and I was explaining to them, you know, the hardships that I had. They were like, Nita, you know, there is a great university back in the United States. You can apply, see, maybe you can get accepted. So I was like, I, I, I had no idea. So I'm like, well, this, I at least try. So I tried that, got accepted, and that's how I came into the States. So Awesome. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. That was a huge, my family, I mean, again, not only was I the first one to ever go to university, but now I was the first one to immigrate, not by escaping communism. <laughs> so I was the first one not to seek asylum, <laughs> pretty much. I came here to study. I never put... Our builder is LDS, our architect. I mean, we've got so many clients and I love their family fabric of what they stand for. And we're not LDS, but our son went to school at the University of Utah. And we, we're just, we're huge fans. And I love tight families because at the end of the day, your family's all you got. Your yeah. checkbook yeah. is meaningless without your family soul. Zero. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your family is who is going to be there for you no matter what. I know about the the, uh, the Mormons when they go and do their mission for two years, but I never thought of it in return. How Not that you did a mission here, but how you were able to go to BYU and Provo and get out of communism. That is awesome. Well, I when I left, I wasn't... It was, Albania was not com- under communism anymore, but before I left, nobody from my family was ever able to leave the country because of communism. And the ones that did were because they escaped. So they either left by swimming to Greece or they uh, crossed the border illegally. So I was the only one that actually left with a ticket on a plane to come to study. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so that's that's how it started. And then I was 19. It was just, I mean, obviously you come to the States. I come from a very small country with 3 million people total. 
and then you come to the United States and it's just a culture shock in all kinds of different ways. It's got to be overwhelming. Oh, it was. It was very overwhelming. And your English is magnificent. Oh, <laughs> thank you. It has taken a while. <laughs> it's magnificent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I didn't speak English very well. I could understand. Um, and I could write because I had studied English in school. But obviously, when you don't practice, you don't really know the language. Yeah, when I when I moved here, it was it was interesting to say the least. My family had put everything they had. They had given me everything they had. So I I had a lot of responsibility on me to not fail. <laughs> I came here. I studied. Obviously, BYU did not offer architecture. So I studied. I started in construction management. And then obviously I didn't really feel like myself. <laughs> so then when I was talking to one of the um, tutors over there and they just brought up like, well, have you looked into interior design? And then I looked into interior design and then it kind of felt like more of what I wanted to do. And so I studied that. Before I graduated, a large firm here in town, they came and interviewed at the school. They interviewed a few people and they hired me right away. That's the firm in Jackson? Yes. Yeah. And I worked for them for almost nine years. I left in 2020 when I was six months pregnant to start my own thing. So <laughs> so I don't need to tell you that your story, A, it's inspiring and nobody should ever give up. But B, I always laugh when I'm doing these because I talk to regular people dealing with extraordinary clients in unbelievable homes. And it's kind of like when we we're little kids, there's no way when you're a little girl in Albania, you ever thought in your wildest dreams, not even your wildest dreams, that you'd be in Jackson dealing with clients like you've got. No, no. I, I think about that very often. I think about how life sometimes takes shape and how events and people and things in your life happen and how you need to kind of when you see an opportunity, jump on it. And then when, you know, you see that there, there is no more opportunity to grow, you let go of things as hard as it could be, because it was hard for me to leave a job that was paying me very well after nine years yeah. and do something six months pregnant and start completely brand new, right? That was, it was a big shift. It was a big shift for me to leave Albania at 19 years old when I had the school that like so many people back home dreamt of that I'd actually gotten into without any connections. People thought I was crazy. I was like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to start brand new at 19 and then shifting my life over and, and going through schooling and doing all of that for hopefully better opportunities, which so far it has panned out to be that way. But, and then coming to Jackson, Wyoming out of anywhere else. Oh, I know. Could you have picked a better spot? <laughs> and then working, being exposed to this level of luxury, yeah. which again, like when I think of other professionals in my field, many would don't even cannot even dream of that. Unlimited budgets and houses that are dream houses and clients that really have the potential to make these houses be spectacular. So it is. I I feel pretty lucky in that respect. Okay, so I could go down so many different holes with you, but I want to, I want to, and, and I look forward to someday meeting you. I was hoping to meet you when my wife and I were at Quick Draw last month, mm -hmm. but you were out of town or something. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't in town that morning. Well, it's okay. You were a mythical figure at that point because you had canceled <laughs> the podcast so many times. I figured <laughs> this woman doesn't really exist. She is the unicorn. We have those in America, <laughs> by the way. Um, so how do you come into the, the homes that you get to do in Jackson? And how do you keep an open canvas in your mind to be able to create without having, I don't even know if, if past experience, I've got other words that I don't think are the right ones, but but past experiences of all of a sudden you're in a 10,000 square foot, $30 million house which is a completely new paradigm for most of us. And how do you sit there and be 
open to the concept of creating something magnificent because obviously you've pulled it off multiple times. Yeah. So it is it is a process for sure. When I first come on board, I can come on board at different stages with a lot of of new builds and clients. I come in at the very beginning. And that's when I I personally feel that that's when the best products come to life yeah. because there's a collaboration between myself and the architect and the builder. We know each other, we've created a relationship. So the communication has been like it's there and it has been solidified throughout this entire time. So then when a time comes that we actually go into the soft goods and furniture and lighting and all of that, everything has been planned and coordinated with the architect and the builder. Now the client comes in and we are working together very closely to figure out the direction that we want to take the house. I usually, I like to think of myself as an artist. So as an artist, I don't like to confine my style within a certain frame. I cannot say that I only do contemporary or I only do modern or I only do a certain kind of design because that's just not who I am. I'm an eclectic person. I like I like beautiful things. It doesn't matter if it's an antique or if it's something that's modern, if it's beautiful, if it's well made, if it's functional, I love it. How did you how did you learn that? Because you didn't grow up with that. Yes, and I, I did grow up with it and I didn't. So because I have the background that I have from Europe and obviously thousands of years of history in Europe and antiques, and I've been surrounded by that my entire life. Wherever I go back home, there are antique castles and furniture and fabrics and all kinds of beautiful things that have, a, you know, are probably older than, not probably, but are older than the United States is as a state. Yeah. So having all of that background and, and, loving all of that and loving all the different aspects that Europe has ingrained in me. Then we come into the United States, which is more new, and you have more new design, and you have more of a modern, which can be very beautiful. It is not not just because it is more clean and functional, but because it is it does show the progress that we have made as as humans when it comes to design. So you learn to appreciate that. You learn to appreciate what has been there for thousands of years and you learn to appreciate the new things that have taken so much time to get to the point that we are right now that we can be minimal and we can still have things be very functional. It has taken a while, obviously, to get to this point that I can call myself an eclectic. (laughs) But that's because I've been exposed to so much and because um, I have love for beautiful things. And when you when you have that, it's kind of hard to pick. <laughs> so when I work with my clients um, and when we sit down, we try and figure out kind of the direction that they want to go. I try to steer away from trends and tend to go more towards something that's going to be timeless and classic. And that's when you have that kind of a more eclectic feel. So you can bring some antiques in and you can bring more modern pieces and you can make it all work together within a certain aesthetic. So the clients, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, they don't feel like their house is dated. They feel like it's just as fresh as when they first moved in. So to kind of answer your your question, to start with something that's completely fresh and a clean slate, it can be challenging, but it's a good challenge for me because that's how I learn how to appreciate my clients, appreciate their history, who they are as people and kind of combine all of that with my background and my knowledge and put it all together in a, in a space that they will love for many years and they will feel like it's their space and they belong there. So you mentioned about coming into a project at the beginning to collaborate with the architect and builder. Makes complete sense. Uh, we're going through the same thing. We will move in in December into a house we're building in Scottsdale and we had an interior designer, builder, architect, the team we started from day one, and it just makes the process so much easier. How does that compare or contrast to having an orphan taking over a project that somebody either got fired in or for whatever reason you were now brought in in order to pick up the pieces and bring this to fruition? Yeah, it is more challenging. First of all, because, you know, you have to figure out if there was a situation where the previous designer did not work out, why? Why didn't it work out? Was it because there was just not a, a personality mesh? Or was it because the clients were 
didn't find themselves in the designer or was it more misunderstanding? So you have, there is that complexity of the situation that you have to figure out. And then after that's figured out, you have to pick up where every, where the other designer left off and the communication sometimes is not the best and trying to figure out what has happened and where things are left and where to pick up and like where you can push and when you cannot push, right? It's, it's way more challenging for sure, but it doesn't mean that it is impossible. I have been brought in into the projects where either the, the client did not hire a designer right away because they just didn't think it was necessary or the architect and the team didn't think it was necessary. So then it kind of happened a little bit more towards the end. And in those situations, what usually happens is that as a designer, you know, there are certain decisions that can be made that can affect the space negatively. So as a designer, now you're faced with a challenge of, okay, what do I do? Because this has been built already. Like, do we have to go back and redo it? Or do we just try and make do with what we have and put some lipstick on the pig? But that's hard. That is very hard. You have to be very honest with your clients and with the team and be like, hey, as a designer, this is my opinion. This is probably not going to work. Like the proportions here or this cabinet here or this space is not going to be giving you what you want. So we have a few options. We can start over, we can live with it, or we can just try and put some lipstick on the pig. And this is what's going to cost you to do any of these things. So <laughs> let's have the conversation. It is it is definitely more challenging when as designers were brought in either towards the end or not since the beginning, especially when we have to deal with new builds. Renovations are a completely different story. Okay, so so when you're brought in, I mean their nerves are frail right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're feeling exposed and raw. It was a difficult decision to fire the previous designer. It's got to be difficult for you to build trust with those people in a project midstream. And then you go to them and say, I don't know how to tell you this, but those cabinets, they don't work. And this is why. And all they're looking at is their checkbook. I got to believe. Yeah. And my policy has always been honesty is the best policy. You have to like sit down and be honest and share those really hard truths because a designer, you know, like we all, we're not perfect, right? We all make mistakes. Things happen. You know, you purchase something. It doesn't work as well as you thought. And I, I mean, obviously we all have to think of our business and the client has to think of their checkbook at the end of the day. Right. But you have to like, at some point you have to come to the conclusion that, you know, what is the best thing to do here? Yes, I'm, I'm sure the client is worried about their checkbook because they have paid and they have to redo things. But if as a designer, I step into this house like six months from now and I see this really big mistake, like would I feel comfortable not letting my client know that, hey, this is a really big mistake. Like you, you can fix it. It's your choice. But I'm as a designer, I'm telling you that you probably will be bothered by this in six months. So. It is difficult. It's not the easiest thing to do. Those situations are very delicate and they have to be handled in a kind of a very uh, delicate way. But at the end of the day, to me, the most important thing is that at least I did my best. I gave you all the information that I thought I needed to give you. And you can make the decision at the end of the day and see what's most important to you. How often do clients come back and say, I, I just, I'm thinking of my own experience in building homes. You never want to sit there and make a decision and then stare at that decision if it's not going to make you happy because you're going to stare at it for 10 years and it's going to annoy you every time you look at it. Yeah. How often do they actually understand and swallow the pill and just go, no, we need to make it right? Very often? It's tough, though. It is. It is very tough. But, you know, um, with a lot of the clients, when you're building this home and this is supposed to be your dream home in the mountains and there are mistakes that are major obviously there are clients that there are small things that i can point out that at the end of the day might not bother anyone but there can be some major things and in those situations most of my clients that i've had have decided to okay i know this is going to cost me more but probably in the long run this is going to drive me insane if i have it and i know that it's wrong so i might as well just swallow the pill now and get it done and over Actually, it's so funny because I recently have been working with some clients that 
they put, and this is not a new build, but they purchased the place here in Jackson during COVID. Was it sight unseen? I'm not sure if they had ever seen it, but they yeah. might have seen the place, but they were trying to furnish it when, when they were away. They couldn't travel. They couldn't see anything. So they hired some designers out of um, East Coast somewhere. Nobody had ever seen the house. So they just bought and spent a lot of money on furniture that does not fit. Like, it's just, it's not good. So then when I came on board and we started talking, it was a really hard conversation to have, right? Because they were trying to make this house look better and I couldn't work with anything that was there. So we had to have a really hard conversation. And I was like, okay, for you to have what you want, we will have to start over with almost probably 90%. I understand that that's a big financial implication, but I want you to know that I can try with what you have here, but you're not going to get to what you want. And at the end of the day, you might spend more money and you're still not going to be happy. So if you actually want to be happy, like we probably will have to start over. And it was hard for them. But every time we would have a presentation, I'm like, oh my God, Nita, where were you <laughs> three years ago? Like we, we would have saved so much money. <laughs> we're like, Why did we spend all this money? We kick ourselves for doing this. <laughs> so what I would always suggest people is that, or clients is that when you are thinking about building and when you're thinking about having this dream home, Obviously, the architect and the builder are very important, but the interior designer is just as important because if they come later on in the game, there are going to be things that probably are going to have to be redone Yeah. because architects, they're amazing, but they don't think like interior designers. No. We are way more into, like we understand spaces a little bit better. We understand flow. We understand furniture. We understand how you need to sit around to have conversations and have parties and host dinners we understand it a little bit more and better because that's what we have studied than architects do so when it comes to actually planning on the spaces and interior spaces we can bring some very very valuable input so for anybody listening jackson hall has probably the best goodwill in the country because of all these people that have bought stuff sight unseen and it doesn't work yeah, I would say so. If you were to go to uh, home again, yeah, <laughs> I wandered into their uh, back of their store, like not what they have at the store, but like just in the back as I was looking for some things. And it's, it's incredible. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah. And, and at any point you can walk, you can walk into the restore place. And you'll see all this furniture that's actually really good quality. Of course it is. It's Jackson. <laughs> because it, it was probably brand new and new people moved in. They're like, no, we cannot live with this. And so it just no, it out. could be five years old. It's still brand new because nobody goes there for more than a month. Yes. Yep. Um, where's yeah. your husband from? Albania. Oh, he is. He is half Albanian, half Greek from his father's side. But. He was born in Albania. So, so where did you meet? College. At BYU? Yeah. No, yeah. did you really? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. At some point, when did you ever look at each other and go, honey, I actually think we have found the the gold at the end of the rainbow. I mean, our, your life's got to be pretty idyllic. Well, that's a big word. Life is life. Life is always going to be hard and throw you curveballs. We are always, we always have to look back. Actually, just the other day, we were sitting down and we we're having lunch. And my husband, we were just talking about, you know, like some difficulties that we're having right now with our child and, you know, like all the different curveballs that life throws at you. And then he just told me, he's like, well, you know what, Nita, like just earlier this morning, I saw this picture of his father holding the body of his two-year-old that just got killed in Israel. So he's like, what, what did we do to deserve the life that we have right now? And why are they in that position? Like the, life is unfair. Yeah. So it's not like he, he, we don't necessarily understand everything and why we have the opportunities that we have and other people don't. Because obviously I cannot think of, you know, why would a two-year-old child have to go through that? That is just, I cannot even think about it. 
and the life that I could have had, you know, if none of these things would have happened in my life, I would have probably been back home, had a normal life. I don't think I would have thought of myself as probably very successful. I probably would have not been able to, I, I wouldn't have met my husband back home because we met here. So it would have been very different. And I think about it quite often. Like every time I feel like I'm having it, I have it pretty tough. <laughs> And I can think of everything that could have happened and didn't happen and all the opportunities that I've had and somewhat of luck that I've had. And I, it always brings me back to, okay, you know, life can be unjust and it can be tough, but it could be much worse. It could be much better, but it could also be much worse. So it's good. Where I am right now, it's good. Focus on the now. <laughs> yeah. And, and I had a conversation with somebody, you know, a week ago, I, I can't remember. And it was... We, we think of how difficult things are here in America and all the, all the turmoil and all the, you know, whatever you want to call it. And then you look at kids from Ecuador running around in bare feet, kicking a soccer ball, and they're laughing because they just think that they're having the greatest time in their life because they are. It's all perspective. And being handed everything is not a good thing working for things and just appreciating like what you just said about that two-year-old in Israel and what's going on there is just heartbreaking is an understatement. And Palestine and Syria yeah. and like, what have those people done to deserve this? Nothing. Nothing. They just were born in the wrong side of yeah. the world or North Korea for that matter, right? It's just, I don't understand exactly why we are, placed in certain situations and how the universe works and how things come into our lives. But what I do know is that you have to kind of live in the now and you have to be grateful for what you have and always think back anytime that life throws curveballs. Well, at the beginning of our conversation, you said something really interesting and I'm a firm believer. That is when you were in Albania, you were in a certain class and it was super hard to get out of that class and get into a different class. And I don't mean you as Nita. I just mean in general people. Yeah. Same thing in Greece, same thing in Croatia, same thing in, in uh, I mean, think of Bosnia when you were a little girl. It was, it was a, a mess. And yeah. yet you come to America or you go to Canada and we embrace different cultures. I was excited to talk to you because you are from a different culture. I learned so much in talking to people. We want winners. We want people that have come from nothing to succeed because that's the beauty of America. Yeah, it is. It truly is. I mean, this is a country that was made of immigrants. And people always say, well, the American dream is dead. And I'm like, it's not. It might not be as what it used to be back in the 80s, but it's still there. And we can still work to make it even better for everyone. But you do have to put in the work. Like nothing, just things don't get handed out to you, obviously. Like nowhere else, right? You still have to do the work and you still have to work and have to sacrifice and do all these things that, you know, if you're used to a cushy, comfy life, maybe are going to put you outside of your comfort zone. But, you know, for people, for most immigrants, and especially for people, immigrants that come from third world countries like I did, we're not afraid of, you know, doing the hard labor and doing the work and all of that. When I went to school, I I woke up at 4 a.m. cleaning. I was cleaning. I was cleaning bathrooms. I was cleaning parks. I was cleaning. And then going back to, and I was going to school at 7 a.m., taking classes. And at lunchtime, I had another job. would work at a, a, a food service court and I'll do that and then go back to class and then at night I'll study till 3 a.m. and then woke up at 4 have one hour sleep go back to work clean and then go back to school at 7 so it's not easy it's not easy it does require a certain type of personality for sure but it's there it can happen so what what are a couple of the coolest projects you've worked on in Jackson and how did you land them well, I've worked on a few. One of the projects that is still not completed, but um, hoping to complete soon. We have had some difficulties with this area. So the Snake River Sporting Club. Um, yeah, somebody knocked out the bridge. This yeah. iconic red so bridge. It's beautiful. beautiful. And somebody ran it over. 
Yeah, it has been a nightmare, and it's not the first time that it has happened, which has put a, like many curveballs into the project and the timeline. The client is probably one of the most, like they are the most gracious, nicest people I've ever worked with. They have been so patient and understanding throughout all of this, and it has been three years now that we're going through this, and a lot of difficulties because of that bridge. Is that the only bridge to the uh, to the community? The only bridge. They have a forest road um, that you can go and use, but um, because it's not meant for con- construction trucks, and you know, it's just it's a forest road that's made by the service yep. forest service yep. people. They have certain times you can use it, and when it starts snowing, you cannot use it anymore. So now we're kind of stuck using the bridge. They're going to shut it down and have another bridge. I mean, it's just been such a mess. So we were hoping to get the project installed like this month, but that's not going to happen. Now we're hoping maybe beginning of next year, but then again, how do we get furniture there with this bridge not being functional? It's just been kind of a mess. So anyways, what I'm trying to say is that this project has been wonderful. The clients have been wonderful to work with. It's going to look spectacular. The furniture is beautiful, very high-end, modern. And I'm very looking forward to the date where we install everything and and I can see the final product. But until then, it has been three years of working um, at the project in different stages. I was in charge of doing all the interior millwork and working with the architect on getting all of the elevations done, all the bathrooms, all the details, cabinetry, kitchen, anything you can think of interior-wise. So it's a project that I have seen from beginning to end and I cannot wait for it to be coming to fruition. Um, I think it's going to look beautiful. We need pictures by April. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The way that I got the project, I had a good relationship with the architect prior. So when the architect found out that I went on my own, he called me up. We had a conversation. We talked about potential projects. He introduced me to the clients. It was a good fit. And then, yeah, we have worked together ever since. Can you imagine the truck driver who took out the bridge and just how horrible, like I heard the story, so I don't know, I, w- I wasn't there. And the bridge looked like, like it was functioning last month when we drove by it. Is it not? It It is, the, but you cannot, trucks above 10 feet cannot go in and they cannot be over a certain weight. Okay. So no truck that hands like handles furniture can go in or that handles building material can go in. It can just be cars. Like you can have a normal car going and out and you cannot even have two cars crossing the bridge at the same time. It has to be like one car at a time. So how do they get trusses in there? I have no idea. They go through the forest road. Oh, they do. Okay. For now, Yeah, for now. But I don't know what's going to happen in the winter. All right. Sorry, idea. that's just a curiosity in me looking at it because it's such a beautiful area. It is. It's a gorgeous area. Now, do you source um, furniture from just the U.S. or do you source it from Europe as well? It's U.S., Europe, it's everywhere. Okay. The U.S. has obviously, I mean, infinite amount of options, right? But I try to bring new things in, especially because Jackson is so isolated. We tend to see the same things over and over because a lot of designers, you know, they, they are just, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Like you you have to be a little bit more out there to see what's new, to see what's happening, able to bring new things here. So I try to do that. Uh, This last April, I was in Milan for the furniture show over there. Yeah. Is that is that worth going to? It is. Yeah, absolutely. You have vendors from all over the world and there are there were so many beautiful things and so many beautiful lines and lighting and and furniture lines and actually i was able to some of my projects will have some of those new things that i saw last year i was able to go to paris it was kind of a a work slash anniversary trip and they have beautiful antiques over there and very unique things and they have this flea market which is not really a flea market it's more of a high-end market but they had i was able to find this unique chandelier that used to be in an opera house in Prague. Wow. That, yeah, I mean, it's just so beautiful. And I saw the chandelier and I'm like, what what project can I use this? Because this is amazing. <laughs> so then I was able to, my clients who have 
we have been working, they are located in Park City. They have a home in New Orleans and they're very much into all of that. So I'm like, I think this is really going to work for them. So I called them up, sent them pictures. They're like, oh my God, that's fabulous. Yes, let's get it. <laughs> so we were able to get this chandelier and it is, it has the most intricate glass and it's so delicate and we were able to pack it and ship it from France to Jackson. And then it got uncreated because we had to UL list it, which is like, like everything United States has to be UL listed. In yeah, yeah, year. of course. Yeah. So yeah. we had to do that and we had to repack it. And now we're waiting to ship it back to Boston. It has been an almost one year process to get this chandelier. And what is so funny is that I was browsing through a vendor. It's just like a, a U.S. vendor. And they probably did made the same trip to Paris that I did. And they sold the chandelier and they took really good pictures of it and they imitated it. <laughs> but they don't have the story. <laughs> they don't have the story. It's not an antique. My clients will have the story and they will have the actual true antique piece. How important is the story? It is so important. I, I don't mean, Nita, I don't mean just for the chandelier from Budapest. I just mean in, or Prague, I just mean the story in general, whenever, I mean, the story's everything. Yes, it is. It is everything. Can you imagine walking into this beautiful home and you see this chandelier that you haven't seen before and you're like, wow, like, wh where is this from? And then you can tell someone, actually, this chandelier was found in a flea market in Paris. And it was actually salvaged from an opera house in Prague. <laughs> that, that is... Back in the 1960s. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I try, I try to do that. I think that's what brings something that's unique and something that relates to the clients. You know, everyone wants to have that conversation piece, something that's, like, unique about their house. Obviously, Jackson offers that. Obviously, also a lot of people, I mean, obviously in 2020, everyone wanted to move to Jackson. So there was a, a lot of building and a lot of uh, spec homes. It's going crazy. Yeah. But then you walk into those spec homes and they just don't look the same. And if I were my clients at that level, I want my place to look like my place, something that yeah. speaks to me, that I come here with my family, that, you know, I feel like, okay, I built this, even though I bought it ready this feels like me and those things like those unique things that you find that speak to the client is what actually make it that that's what makes it otherwise you're just buying another home like everybody else so yeah it's it's a lot of work though the the work that you do that your profession does is first of all money well spent because there's so many decisions for people to make literally a thousand and I'm not exaggerating there's that many and your brain starts to explode because it's not trained to deal with all these details whereas your profession that's exactly what you do yeah um, and then you walk into the home and it's quite an a talent that that you have to be able to take their what's in their head and actually execute it to where they've got this chandelier from Prague that will be in their home and it's <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that I also hear a lot is when you're in the team, you're faced with so many decisions that you have to make that unless you have some sort of guidance and someone to help you, you start getting decision fatigue. And then especially when you don't necessarily understand how things work together. Yeah. A designer in the team is invaluable because they are going to to serve kind of like that bridge between you and the architect and the builder. The designer works way more closely with the the clients and the architect and the builders do. The architect is going to help with the overall, but then the architect kind of steps out and it's the builder. But the designer is there from beginning to end. What is one of your biggest failures and how you overcame it and how it drives you today? I would probably say is, well, it's a failure and a learning opportunity, right? When you first start a business, you want to get business because you want to build your business and you see red flags with clients and you know that the relationship is not probably going to be as smooth as ideally it would be but because you are in the process of trying to build your business you kind of oversee all those things and you take the project on and it's very difficult 
the clients tend to sometimes can be difficult or they just don't get the vision or they're just not invested enough. This is just like a third, fourth home or, you know, whatever. So they just want to build it and get it done with. Whether you as a designer are way more invested because this is your blood, sweat and tears at the end of the day. And this is how you're building your business. It's your brand. It's your brand, your personal yeah, it brand. Is. Exactly. It is your brand. And that's that's how you're going to build yourself up. So when the relationships don't work out, I've used it as a, even though it is, it, it it's not necessarily a failure. It's more like a, a learning opportunity, but it is damaging to your business in some sort because you are relying on their revenue and you have built your business and you've built your timeline, taking into account certain projects. So when things don't work out, what I've learned is that, okay, it might, there may be many reasons why things didn't work out, but what can I learn from it? And what I can learn from it is that, okay, maybe there are some things that I should look out for when we have those initial interviews. And is it something that I'm actually capable of dealing with in the long run? Or is it something that I should just nip in the bud and just realize that this is not a good working relationship? And I've had quite a few of those because as a new business owner, again, as I said, like you, you're trying to get as much business as you can to build your business. You're more in a you know, starvation mode. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You're hungry. You want to take anything to keep the cash register going. Exactly. And then you realize in the long run that, you know, even though like I had revenue, but was it worth it in the long run? Quite frankly, towards the end, it's never worth it. Like when the relationship and when the, the fit is not there with the clients, it's better to just cut things off in the very beginning. That's what I've I've learned at least from the failures, failures, because there are no failures. They're just opportunities for you to learn. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Last, qu- last question, only because I'm super curious. We went to an awards banquet in Naples a couple of weeks ago, and I'm with a guy and he's a builder and he's built, he builds about four, seven to $8 million spec houses a year. Plus he builds another dozen homes for clients. And I was talking to him about the difference of building when you don't have a client, the client being yourself, how you can make decisions and get the job done quicker. And the difference between building and having a client so it's for them. And I said, there's a risk involved in everything. And he goes, Ted, there's a risk in everything. There's a risk if I'm the client building for a spec. And there's a risk if I'm building for somebody else in that relationship. So... Coming from from Albania, a third world country, how is the risk of making decisions there for fear that the government might either lock you up or do something? And now you come to America where it's completely, completely open to you can make whatever decisions for the most part you want. Well, I don't I mean, as I said, like, you know, communism back home fell when I was like four years old. but. So it kind of, even though it fell, there was still a lot of, you know, yeah. things don't don't become great right away. Like you have to go through a transition stage and we're still in the transition stage back home. When it comes to taking risks back home, and I mean, this actually applies to me here too. It's a different, for an immigrant to take risks is very different than from, from someone that was born and raised here to take risks. And I say this and I have this conversation with people very often. If I take a risk, and the way that I look at my life right now in general is like, if I take a risk and, and, and something and I fail, like with my business, I took this risk because it was a risk. And if I fail, I have nothing to go back to. It's not that, you know, my parents can bail me out or, you know, I have an inheritance or any of that. Like there, there is nothing. If I fail, I fail and that's it. And I'm probably going to have to start over from scratch. And that kind of puts things, it puts a lot of pressure on you, but it also puts puts a lot of responsibility for you to take very calculated risks. So when we talk about risks and yes, there is risk with everything. There is risk with you even getting out of the door in the morning. There is risks, right? How can you minimize at at least for, for someone like me, I'm like, how can I minimize the devastating effect of something of, of a wrong step? Right. And for someone that was born here and it's actually kind of, I don't want to go too much off topic, but it is a conversation that I, have with a lot of people because when we talk about you know like why it is hard sometimes to relate to people that have come have lived here their entire lives they have not really seen war they have not really seen what a a bad government can do right so you don't 
you don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You might lose your job. You don't have anything that you can rely on pretty much. And I grew up like that, right? Like my father had a job one day and we were great. The next day he lost his job. We were scrambling and there was no consistency. So when you grow like that, when you when you have that kind of upbringing, you're always thinking the next step and the step after that. And you're always trying to make sure that whatever risk you take is very calculated and you always have some sort of a backup plan, right? And yeah. in the United States, you kind of have a little bit of that opportunity because I'm like, okay, well, you know, if I fail, I could probably find a job, right? I have enough skill in me and I have enough grit in me to be able to go and find another job and I, I will probably not starve. We might struggle for a bit, but we're not going to starve. If you go to another country, and especially a country like mine, if you fail, you're starving. There is no government there to help you. There is no no one there to give you anything. Just knowing that puts you way above the majority of the population because the majority population does not have that certainty. Wherever you go in the world, especially yeah. third world countries, nobody has that certainty. If you fail, you're starving. You're dead. You're dead. You're done. You're gone. <laughs> yeah. And that's, it, it is, it's something beautiful about the United States. And I hope and pray every day that everyone realizes how privileged they are to not have to think about that and how to not take what this country has to offer for granted because the majority of people out there don't have that. And either We're super lucky to live here. Yeah. We are super lucky yeah. to live here. You know, things happen for a reason. I'm, I just, I wake up every morning. I'm happy because I believe it's a choice. And then we go from there and we're super lucky. The people we have as clients, everything we do, the land we get to, to go and experience. No, this is, America is a fantastic place. North America. You know, I came from Canada. It's not that tough. Okay. I could talk to you for quite some time. You are worth the wait. Thanks for canceling so often. I I I apologize. You don't have I to. I think the first time. Well, but I think the first time I was super sick and I sounded so congested. I'm like, this is not going to sound good in a podcast. Yeah. And then something happened, and then something else happened, and I felt so terrible. And Dad, I'm going to tell you, my I take my son to JH Therapeutic Riding every Monday, and I usually have all of his appointments in the calendar because I I cannot miss it. And this one for today, I hadn't put in the calendar. And then I just remembered that he was supposed to go. And I had a freak out. I'm like, I cannot cancel. So I called my husband. I'm like, you have to take off your work and go and take him there because I cannot cancel again. <laughs> well, I was expecting it. So forgive me. <laughs> Nita, you're an awesome lady. <laughs> Thank you. I love your stories. My... I, I didn't want to bring it up because it was a political thing, but my son did tell me about, I want to say it was 1988, you had a dictator there and he died and he bankrupted the country. He just crushed the whole country. And he goes, oh yeah, mention this guy's name. I go, no, if he, if he, was, a, he, if he was a corrupt dictator, I'm not going to mention that. That's probably a sore point. But well, it's not, it's, it is a sore, I mean, it's not really a sore point, but it, for it has, my country is still struggling because it's still affected by everything that happened during those 50 years of communism. It was terrible. Like if you think of North Korea right now, that's that's what my country was from 1945 until 1990. So 45 years, almost 50 years. Yeah. So, so I remember vividly when Ronald Reagan told Gorbachev to tear down the wall and East Germany apparently today is like West Germany is modern and it's super uh, progressive and they're it's one city now, but East Germany vastly different. It's just humbling. And if people would would, I'm a huge advocate of if we would just get out and travel, we would a appreciate our neighbors more. We would understand most of our problems are self inflicted. It's not don't blame somebody else. You can only control you. And most people in this country or in this world, they're super nice people. I agree. And I I just, I try to use or kind of remember people that how fragile things are. Because back in 1945, my country, or even North Korea for that matter now, nobody knew what was going to happen. 
right? Like they thought that things were going to be nice and they let things go and, you know, one thing led to another and then they ended up in this dictatorship that has devastated them. And if you looked at if you look at countries that have gone through that, they are the third world countries that have still not been able to recuperate after what they have been through. I feel like it is our duty to to do our best to preserve those. So do you get do you get nervous here right now because of what's going on? A little, yeah. I do. I do mostly because there is a lot of misinformation from both ends. Yeah. People get kind of caught up in their tiny little world and they cannot really see beyond and what's happening and how things are affecting them from both sides. And because a lot of people, as you said, have not been able to experience life outside of the United States, they don't understand again how fragile things are. That a president is not just a president. He can lead the country to destruction. Yeah. And if you let things go and if you're not involved if, and if you kind of like completely careless, that's how my country was. That's how people were back then. Right. And they thought that things were just going to happen. And then they ended up being the poorest country in Europe and completely isolated from anyone else and having to escape and all those things. So I do get scared. I hope that because America does have checks and balances, that things wouldn't get to that point. But I also know from first-hand experience that, that peace is very fragile. Growing up, I've been through a civil war and the war in Kosovo. And those just happened overnight. You're having a beautiful day, and then the next day you're at war. So, Well, just like Hamas bombing Israel. So, And those things don't just happen. Like There are things, things have happened before. Situations that have not been resolved, bad decisions that have been made that have led to that. But people kind of tend to get into their little world and get involved in their world. And they don't somewhat, they don't care until it reaches that point. And then everyone is freaking out and you're in reactive mode, not trying to figure out what to do and how to survive. And to your point, if we would just better educate ourselves on facts, we would be in a better position. Yeah. And I have one more thing to say to that in that aspect. If we just let the professionals do their work, yeah. it's and I'm going to bring it back to the small nucleus of, of designing. When, when you hire a team of professionals, let them do their job because they know, they have the experience and know how things work. Don't try and micromanage. Don't try and tell your builder and architect and designer what to do. Listen to their advice because they know. They have done this so many times. They have all the experience. They have worked with each other. I could take COVID. Just let the experts and the ones that actually have given their lives to this cause guide you. Okay, one last question for you. Your house that you're doing in Victor, is it is it tough to design your own house? Do you overanalyze it? Um, Do you get too critical of yourself? Are you a bad client of you? No. Well, I hope not. I cannot, I hope not. Um, I think that because I know exactly what I want. So I'm not going, I don't waste anyone's time trying to do things, you know, and present to me and tell, I'm like, this is what I want. Please bring me this. My biggest challenge right now is budget. <laughs> it's everybody's challenge. It's but not that's, you. That's mine in particular, because as my, my team says, Nida, you have Jackson taste. But not Jackson, but very small, very small budget. So that has been my biggest problem right now. I think because I know exactly what I want, and my husband is extremely supportive. He couldn't. I mean, he does care, but he's just like you know, you know way better than I do. So I'm not going to come and be like, no, I don't want this. It's like you know better. You handle it. You can make design decisions. Include me. Hold on, you seem super determined, just like that little girl who got into architect school in Albania that nobody would allow you to get into. So you would run over him if he got in your way, in a nice way, not in a mean way. No, no, no. He had a few requirements, and he he had one requirement that was like he, he wanted a basement, and that dream got shut down. That's because budget, right? But basements are cheap to build. What are you talking they are about? Not, not in this area. You don't have to finish it. <laughs> not in this area, they're not. 
So that dream got shut down. And then he wanted nice appliances, but he's getting that. So it's all about compromise. <laughs> Maybe at some point we should have a, a podcast about uh, compromising in marriage. <laughs> that would be good. 15 years later. Well, how many years? We've been together 17 years, 15 years married. And when people ask me, I'm like, compromise. <laughs> it's about compromise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's about compromise. Yeah. We just had our 35th anniversary yeah, last yeah. week. Yeah, it's and marriage is not that hard. <laughs> All right, uh, Nita, I once again, thank you for taking the time to, to be on Friends of Build Magazine. It's awesome. Thank you. This was really fun. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below. I'm Ted Bainbridge, and you've been listening to Friends of Build Magazine podcast. <laughs>